Hey friends, Ashton Gustafson here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Hope you and yours are doing well. I'm super excited today uh, to meet a new friend uh, that I think has some beautiful wisdom to unpack for us today. Um, you know, one of the things I love about our community here is the cross-pollination of people that I get to meet, and uh, if you guys remember, we had a podcast not long ago on a book called Subtraction, and he goes, hey, I think you should reach out to a friend of mine uh, at Brown University, Yael Schoenbrunn, and she's got this new book that's out called Work, Parent, Thrive, and she and I were talking even before the call here, before we hit record, and this is a book uh, about science-based strategies to kind of help you navigate your days, manage the overwhelm, ditch the guilt, get you to that heart space uh, and that joyful way of being in the world. And uh, at first glance, you may think, okay, I'm, if I'm not a working parent, I can't chat through this book, but that's not true. This is, this is a book about the human experience that we are all navigating today. And so I'm super excited to get to know her and her story today. She has her own podcast as well. Uh, and so with that being said, Yael, welcome to Good, True, and Beautiful Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm excited to become your friend. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was a very uh, bumpy bio that I gave you, and so I always no, ask, that was awesome. I, I always ask people when they introduce themselves and their work in the world, where do they begin? So I'm going to ask you that. Uh, where do we start when we talk about all the good stuff that you're doing in the world? Yes. Well, it was a sunny day in September back in 1979. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, I sort of lead with, I'm a clinical psychologist and academic by training who has kind of transformed my professional life into really helping science-based ideas from psychology get to the public um, and focusing right now on working parenthood, but I have other projects that sort of have a similar mission of translating evidence-based psychology um, to other populations for people, basically helping academic science get to people who can actually benefit from it. Um, and then I'm also a mom of three little boys, ages six, nine, and 12. And I got started in this role of translational science um, when I became a mom um, and sort of kind of by happenstance. Like I became a mom. I was heavy in clinical psychology and academia. And I thought, oh, I totally have this working parent thing in the bag. Like I'm really lucky. I have a job I love. I have a supportive partner. I'm at a place in my, like I worked really hard and timed it so that I was at a place in my career where I could have some flexibility. And lo and behold, it was harder than I anticipated by a lot. Wow. <laughs> so what I started to do was read everything that I could get my hands on from the bookstore and the library about working parenthood. And a lot of what I found got to some important points and true points about, you know, the way that our world is not set up to support working parents in so many important ways and especially working moms. But as a clinical psychologist and somebody who specializes in relationships, it felt to me like a lot of the literature, the, the books that were out there in the popular press weren't capturing some of what I thought was going on, which, you know, because I have a clinical psychology ex uh, perspective was, you know, it's kind of specific, but I started diving into the academic literature and found a bit more there mm. of what I thought was really speaking to my experience in terms of this conflict that is so human and that it's not just a bad thing. There's actually some good things that come out of it if we know how to uh, have a, a helpful mindset and have the science-backed strategies to kind of harness some of the discomforts for good. 
Um, and so I started writing about it. And the the real pivotal moment was one day when I was thinking about these things, I sat down to just write an essay. So I was like, ah, I, have, I think I have something to say. And I penned an op-ed and I had never written for popular press audiences before, but I Googled this was literally during my kids' naps, actually. And I, at the end of their nap time, I was like, oh, I'll just submit it. So I Googled how to submit op-ed piece. And of course, at the top of the page is the instructions for submitting to the New York Times. So I did that and it got published and it went viral. And I was like, oh, I think I think this might be my calling. <laughs> I'm going to do this. So that's that's what landed me to writing this book and and to kind of having this role in um, translating evidence-based psychology. Yeah, Well. Wow. Yeah, you just kind of Google, how do you get this thing on the New York Times? And it happens. It, yeah, yeah. It, by the way, I have tried to get other pieces into the New York <laughs> Times with zero success. So it's not like I have some magic gift. That's it all right. It was very, very was, hard and it was very lucky. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. <laughs> um, in doing some background um, study of, of your work, I came across this phrase, a, a relationship researcher. Um, mm. Like... Break that down for me, because when I when I think about this from an academic standpoint uh, and psychology and things like that, you you get way in the weeds on where <laughs> relationships break down and how they become beautiful. Is that is that what a relationship researcher is? Yeah, I mean, a relationship researcher can study so many different facets of relationships, and I will say too that. What I studied in my academic life was relationships between partners, married couples mm -hmm. largely, but just people in dating relationships. But um, I think about relationships a lot more broadly. So I, I, I also do a lot of parent coaching in my private practice. And in this particular book where I'm talking about roles, I think a lot about the relationships between the roles in life that we inhabit. And we often think about relationships as being like good or bad and and as you're saying, like, I, I like to get into the weeds because I think any human relationship has so much nuance mm -hmm. and complexity and discomforts, but the discomforts aren't always bad. We just need to know strategically how to approach those discomforts in beneficial ways. So I won't bore you with the details of my academic research, which was um, looking at marital distress and how it's associated with different psychiatric problems and also um, looking at how to extend couples treatments to more people. Um, but in my popular press writing, it's more about like understanding what the research says about healthy relation, healthy relationship functioning um, and how to sort of tolerate the, dis the uncomfortable parts in in effective ways. Yeah, yeah, being able to allow and absorb the the challenges as they come our way, rename them, uh, and once they're renamed and reappraised, well, now we can maybe go somewhere. Um, That's right. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, <laughs> now, one one last question before we get into the uh, what I wanted to dial in today was, which is your latest book here. I did hear in another interview you using this phrase acceptance and commitment therapy. And I don't know why I was like, "Ooh, what is that?" Um, I can you break it down for this redneck in Texas exactly what? Because you you used it a lot in that interview, and I was like, "There's some what? There's something there, and I want to learn about that." So, acceptance <laughs> and commitment therapy. What is that? All right. So, acceptance and commitment therapy is a kind of therapy. So, some people have heard of psychodynamic therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just another kind of therapy, and it falls under 
the umbrella of these science-backed treatments in a particular umbrella of science-backed treatments that incorporates acceptance strategies and change strategies. Um, and it has six core processes that can go into them. Okay. But at the end of the day, <laughs> if you really want me to get into the weeds, um, at the end of the day, what we're trying to affect in acceptance and commitment therapy is increased this is a fancy term and I'll explain what it is, increased psychological flexibility. And that's mm -hmm. the idea that we know what matters to us and we're able to move our life in directions that we care about, that we're able to stop or keep doing behaviors when it matters to do so in ways that are lined up with what matters to us, but also uh, can change based on our circumstances, like the world around us and the world inside of us. So basically, the idea here, and this is what we know from research, is that mental health, mental illness is what one of the features that is common among mental, many mental health problems is that there's a lot of rigidity. Like we keep doing things that don't work, mm -hmm. right? We, we avoid or we overengage. Um, we engage in relationships in ways that just don't serve our psychological needs, and so what we're trying to build is not necessarily a particular pattern of behavior, but more flexibility mm -hmm. to kind of pivot to do more of what works better. And the core processes are, are the ways that we build that ability to be more flexible, more psychologically flexible. Not, I can just list them, but the processes are mindfulness, acceptance, recognizing that we all have thoughts and stories that we get absorbed by, learning how to unhook from them when it helps to do so getting clear on how we want to show up moment to moment and then engaging in actions that help us move our life in directions that matter most to us. Well, uh, well, let's see. Let's fast forward April 2023. Love to have you on. Want to go dig deeper into that. You good? <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, no, I one of the things that has been so fun for me because acceptance and commitment therapy is so well known inside of this very insular community in psychology. And it's mm. like it's it's a treatment that I do in the therapy room. It's a treatment that I live by. Like mm -hmm. th these are tenets that help me live better as a professional, as a parent, as a partner, as a friend. And it like having these processes to kind of turn to when I'm struggling with something has been really transformative for my life in, in such powerful ways. Yeah. Well, you and I were talking before the call about books that, that shifted our thinking. Uh, one of them was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And he mentions in there, and I think that's why I was so interested when I heard you talk about this, that like we will experience suffering in our lives if we cannot move into one of these three mediums, those being acceptance, enjoyment, and enthusiasm, I believe. Like if you can't accept it, be enthusiastic about it, or enjoy it, chances are you're going to experience discomfort, i.e. suffering. Um, and I, there's that flexibility word that's needed to accept when the hand we're dealt is not the one that we expected was coming our way. Uh, that's I, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I, I'm super curious about this, and sounds like sounds like you're the right person to talk to about it. <laughs> yeah, I could talk too long about it. And I will say too, just to, um, so what's cool about acceptance and commitment therapy, well, there's many cool things, but one of the really awesome things is that it incorporates a lot of ancient Eastern philosophy. So ideas from Buddhism um, that 
are that are really orientations that we take towards pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. In and I, what I love about it is that it incorporates these like really ancient truths with modern laboratory science. So for me, that's extra powerful. Yeah, beautiful. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to go off the the rabbit trail with you there, but no, uh, anytime. Just had to ask about it. Okay, well, let's chat about work, <laughs> parent, thrive. New book that's in the world. Uh, when was this released, by the way? November 1st. Oh my goodness. Super fresh. Okay. Well, we've got you on the book. Hot off the presses. Hot off the press. (laughs) Um, So uh, let's begin. Like why, why this book? Why now? Well, so the book was many years in the making. So why now is I finally got the job done, but no, I'm, I'm kind of teasing. I think that one of the things that has really intrigued me is how we think about working parenthood and the problems they're in. And that we have, as a culture, really dropped into defining it as like an outside problem. And I, and there's clearly truth to that, right? Like social policy that doesn't offer paid family leave is, is kind of crazy that we're the only developed country that doesn't do that. Um, workplaces that have been so inflexible, childcare that is inadequate and inaccessible to so many, like uh, unequal marriages, like these are legitimate problems that need to be addressed, are being addressed too slowly and that we need to continue to put pressure on. But as I was sort of suggesting before, I think that there's also this psychological element that almost never gets discussed that I think is really important in part because it helps us to figure out like what actually needs to be changed in the world outside. And it helps us to figure out how to manage more effectively the parts that can't, that aren't going to be touched by outside changes. And so what I mean by that is, and this goes to a quote from Sigmund Freud, who I love, which is love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as you were noting, like you don't have to be a parent to be able to relate to that quote. Like most of us have people in our lives that we care deeply about and that we want to be there for. And most of us have some kind of craft that we care about, whether it's work or a hobby, you know, for you, maybe it's your podcasting and your job. But we're, it, it is good for us to have lots of roles in life. That is one of the things that we know from research that goes back all the way back to the 1800s. Like people have higher well-being when they inhabit multiple roles mm. and role obligations are good. Like people counting on us, things that we really need to do that gives our life a sense of meaning and purpose. And at the same time, when that is true, and that is mo- often true for most people, there is a conflict, right? Because when I am parenting, I'm not doing my work. When I'm working, I'm not there for the show at my kid's school. And so inherent in inhabiting lots of roles that makes our life full and and full of meaning and purpose is that we're going to have conflict. And so when we make progress on flexibility and the flexibility in the place and we still conflict, I think, you know, that's an opportunity to say, you know, This is the human part. And so the outside strategies of changing policy or getting my marriage to be different, that's not where I need to put my attention. What's more useful is actually the psychological strategies, strategies, and I call these like the inside-out strategies. So we need to have these outside-in strategies to help make progress in the world outside of our bodies and our homes. And we also need these inside-out psychological strategies to manage this very human, fundamentally human conflict between roles that is good for us to have. So rather than avoid the discomfort, it's like a mindset shift. We want to figure out how do we take advantage of the ways that these things exist in complementarity with one another. Yeah, well said. And and I think one of those um, inside out 
uh, mediums or, or modes that you talk about is like this, this getting very clear on your values. I think you, you talk about responding to discomfort in a value aligned way. Um, and I wanted to chat with you about like how our values are involved in navigating, uh, our busy lives. So help me understand this, hold my hand a bit with what you're talking about when you talk about, um, getting clear on your values and how doing that can help you navigate some of the discomfort of numerous roles we all have in life. Yeah, so values are one of the six core processes in acceptance and commitment therapy. And the way that they're defined is actually important to pause on. So as opposed to a goal, which is a destination that we want to achieve, values are more how we take the journey. So if you're climbing a mountain, values describe how it is that you're climbing the mountain moment to moment. And you know, there's lots of ways to decide how you want to take a journey, right? You can go fast or you can do it mindfully. You can do it with other people or you can really enjoy sort of alone time. And we choose our values based a little bit on our circumstances too. Like if you are climbing a mountain and you were trying to get a workout and the weather changes, now your value isn't to get a workout. Now your value is to seek shelter and make sure that you're safe. And the same thing goes in all pockets of life. I mean, values clarification and figuring out what's most important to you in terms of how you want to show up in a given role in a given moment is really helpful. And it's it can get crowded out by the emotions, the discomfort that we might feel, or by the stories that we tell ourselves about like, oh, I can't do that, or this is too hard, um, or that person, you know, hurt my feelings. And so I'm not going to do what they want, Right that can take the place of what it is that we most want to be, how we most want to show up. And what's helpful in acceptance and commitment therapy are these practices where you actually practice clarifying for yourself, what's the me that I want to be in this particular moment? This is a phrase that I love from one of my colleagues, Jill Stoddard. What's the me that I want to be? And really getting curious about that. The me that I want to be is not the resentful jerk that I sometimes look like in those moments. And so what is helpful is to unhook from the emotions and to develop this practice of uh, recognizing like in those tough moments, how do you want to show up? So for, for many of us, like some of those tough moments are on repeat. So, you know, I am married, so I'm going to fight with my husband from time to time. So for me, it's been really helpful to really think through how do I want to show up? Like when my buttons are being pressed or when I feel like uh, I haven't been respected, what is the me that I want to be in those kind of moments? And so I've developed mantras like calm and assertive, right? And being able to latch on to that value in a moment where I'm furious, where if I had let the if I let the emotions run the show, I'm gonna be a resentful jerk. Instead, pausing and saying, okay, calm and assertive, what would calm and assertive look like in this moment is really, really helpful. So values are helpful in general, like recognizing the kind of parent that you want to be, the kind of worker that you want to be, the kind of employee that you want to be, the kind of friend that you want to be. And they're particularly important to clarify for yourself in moments where you're activated, where the self-stories that can really interfere with the kind of person that you want to be in the world can can grow strong. Um, and I can share a couple of uh, values clarification exercises, but my favorite one is traveling forward 30 years in life and imagining your older self looking back on your current self and asking yourself, like, what would make me most proud 
to be doing in this patch of life? Like, this is hard. So 30 years from now, what would I say? I What could I say? Like, I was really proud. In this tough patch, I, I acted in this way. I showed up in this way. And that can be your mantra. Love that. Does that make sense? 100%. Absolutely love it. And I, and I think that one of the... Um, a practice, another practice of, of kind of naming some of those uh, values are taking note of, of when the ego's offended, taking note of when you're uh, all of a sudden the heart rate's up, the face is a little bit red, you, you, something has crossed paths with something you value in that moment. And, and now you need a practice to step back and say, who's the me I want to be? Who, 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 how, do, how do I want to be in real time when that ego offense comes my way. I think it's super helpful, just kind of how you broke that down. Yeah. Well, I love what you're saying because that is one of the things that I teach in the therapy room, which is like get to know your red flags. Mm. Like we all have those moments where where things are about to go off the rails and we're about to show up as not the me that we want to be. And as you're saying, like recognize, you know, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What are your red flags when your ego is injured? Does your heart race? Do your palms get sweaty? Does your mind start going a mile a minute? Do your ears start ringing? And and if you can like pause and notice and then choose. So this is another quick little mantra that one of my colleagues, Debbie Sorensen has like pause, notice, choose. And the choose is choose your value. Hmm. Choose how you want to be. But it first requires, as you're saying, this is the hard part. Like it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. You got to pause. But I will say the more you practice it, that pause can actually happen really quickly. Like I have developed a practice of like uh, feeling my feet. When I can feel my my heart rate getting elevated, I just connect to the ground. And then I notice, I take a deep breath and I I ask myself, how do I want to show up? Yep, yep. And I think you had one of my favorite Viktor Frankl quotes in the book, somewhere around here. Uh, In between the stimulus and the response, there is a space and in that space lies our destiny, something like that. Um, I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but um, I think, yeah, the sacred pause, the, it is in that space where uh, we, can, we can absorb what's coming our way, digest it a bit, name the value we want to have, and reemerge. This all happens, by the way, in milliseconds <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, in, real, in real life. It does. And and I would say like the time to road test it is not when you're, you know, 80 yes. shades of angry. It's <laughs> it's like, you know, do some imaginal experiences of like, OK, this imagine that this happened. Like, what? how would I want to show up and then practice it? Because it happens so quickly and we can, you know, we do, we get flooded by emotions and emotions. So I'm really a fan of understanding emotions for the function that they serve. They they are wired in to protect us. The problem is they can get tripped up by things that don't actually put us in mortal danger, right? In the modern world, we're not most often in mortal danger, but there's this hangover effect from pre-modern times where like that anger gets tripped up and it's to protect you from from death Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that you can propagate your genes. So we have to figure out how to work with the systems that aren't entirely suited for the environment that we live in. And part of that really is like taking a pause and and choosing something that isn't necessarily lined up with how our emotions might be directing us because our emotions are are directing us in a way that isn't 
uh, going to reflect the kinds of people that we want to show up as. Yeah, yeah. The same things happening in the body. You think there's a tiger in the bush, uh, and you just kind of totally. you just got a text message that didn't set right with you. <laughs> A hundred percent. It's it's kind of wild. And that's another fun thing to like think back. OK, 10 years from now, will I will I think that this is as terrible and disastrous yeah. as I think that it is in this moment? Yeah. Um, it's hard to get that perspective in the moment. But again, it's something that we can practice. Yeah. Talk about labeling. Um, and the again, so much of my journey of reading work like yours is is just kind of myself getting new language. Uh, that I that I wasn't given, um, but I, I, e- even this idea of um, you you use the phrase of like, what if you changed using the word conflict and started saying enrichment? Uh, just the, the smallest shifts in our language. I actually think I said to someone once, "Show me your language, and I'll show you your life." You know, when we we use all these mm-hmm. words like "life's a battle," I'm putting out fires. All I do is firefight all day long. Well, chances are like, yeah, I bet your life does feel like it's going up in flames. But but what if a busy day was an enriched day, was, was, a, was a loaded day? Um, the language we use matters. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that through your private work, you know, and your practice and, and just maybe even personally as well. Yeah. So the the power of labels is really like we can't overstate it. And actually, again, not to get too far into the weeds on acceptance and commitment therapy, but it's based on a philosophy of language called relational frame theory that has to do with the way that we attach to words and how words then influence uh, our internal experience and our behavioral choices. So I'll give you like a this is a very basic example, but say you decided that your value was to be healthy and aligned with that value. You decided on the committed action of waking up three mornings a week to go for a brisk walk. Now your alarm goes off, you're tired, you're cocooned in your bed and your mind says, this is something my mind says, I'm not a morning person. I can't get up. Right. So we've labeled ourselves as not a morning person. And we told ourselves like, I'm not able to do that. Now, what does that do to our motivation? What does that do to how connected we are to the value of being healthy? It really makes it hard to engage with action because we've labeled ourselves. Now, a simple shift of language can be something as simple as like, my mind is telling me I'm not a morning person. My mind is telling me I can't get up. And then you don't even have to come up with a different label. You just recognize my mind tells me things. It probably have some truth, but I'm going to choose to follow the value. It could be that the value is like, I need more sleep. And that's that's fine. That's totally fine, of course. Um, but because it lines up with the value of being more healthy. But what we want is not to get so rigid with the language, because when we attach rigidly to labels or stories, they really interfere with our ability, our, our sort of flexibility in showing up in line with our better selves. So and the other alternative would be to actually edit the story or edit the label. So uh, it could be something like, I haven't had a lot of practice waking up. Or it could be something like, I like staying in bed, but I'm going to feel so proud of getting up. And then when it comes to, you know, the role conflict labels, thinking that something is impossible 
to thinking it's a challenge is a really great way to reappraise a situation and develop a more flexible, growth-minded approach to it. So I talk a lot about mindset in the book, and I'm a huge fan of uh, mindset research, you know, that started with Carol Dweck and was really related to how students learn. We've learned that mindsets, like how we think about stress, how we think about mental health, how we think about happiness, and whether we think it's something that can be built over time versus an inborn capacity that is fixed, changes what we can do with it. And it turns out that when you have a more growth-oriented mindset, that there is power to be had in feeling anxious. There is power to be had in uh, having a particular personality, but wanting to grow in a different direction. And what I talk about in this book is that thinking that our roles only conflict is kind of a, a, a what I would call a work family uh, conflict fixed mindset, mm. right? And what I try to do with this book is try to help people transform that mindset into a growth mindset where we see that conflict is a part of the package, but so is enrichment if we can open up and see it in that way. And it really starts with working on our labels. So rather than seeing uh, working parenthood or role conflict as impossible and unjust, seeing it as a challenge um, and injustice as something to to be work, you know, to fight for, to fight against, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I I love that, that, that conflict is part of the package you get when you enter into growth mindset. And, and, I think the this the whole dialogue around labels is something I could chat about for for a long time. Um, have Have you seen like when you enter a growth mindset and you start into a new vernacular with your life? Do you also see that as you have new ways to appraise the life that is before you? Do you also see like? let down from expectations kind of start to melt away a little bit? Do you, do you see possibility and joy and serendipity kind of emerge a little bit where you're not so demanding that, gosh, life has to be like this. I feel like you, you get, you get a little bit more mystery, which is beautiful, you know, and, and my senses are, we all want a little bit more beautiful mystery in our life. Maybe just swapping out some of your labels could be some of the first steps to do that. Totally. I'll give a personal example, which is, um, so I, I do a, a lot of writing and I recently had a piece published in the Washington Post on mindset, on work family mindset, um, and the power that, that can be had when we shift our mindset into more of a growth mindset in, in working parenthood. And as often happens with media articles, it, it got slammed. <laughs> there was a lot of people that were very critical of it. Once upon a time, I, it would have like just killed any motivation that I had to write. But because I've been so uh, just excited about this, the way that mindset can help me. And so, um, I don't know, insistent on working with my own mindset to be a more growth oriented mindset. I very deliberately was like, what do I want to make of this? Like, what am I learning about how people read articles and how they absorb information that is counterintuitive or or just contra, contrary to like what they already think. Like I know as a psychologist that we have a strong tendency towards confirmation bias and it's extremely uncomfortable to be told that there's a different way to think about something than what we're already thinking. I also know that when you're told um, that something that's uncomfortable for you, 
if there's an implication that it's your fault, like we get very defensive. And I think that's how people read it. And so I started thinking, oh, this might be like a new area that I can write about and talk about and think about. And if even if I'm still talking about working parenthood, this can inform how I talk about it. I can do it with more sensitivity, with more compassion, with more awareness of how people might tend to receive this information. And so I think, you know, as you're saying, like there can be beautiful mystery, like we don't know what we don't know. And when we fail, sometimes painfully, there's something to be learned if we can open ourselves up to receive that lesson. And that's what the mindset research really shows, that when folks have a growth mindset, they're more receptive to feedback. They're more able to tolerate discomfort mm -hmm. of judgment. They're more able to perform well because they're not so afraid of failing because failure isn't a disaster. It's an opportunity. And so that is why growth mindset is such a powerful concept. And it it just applies to so many pockets of life, right? Not just obviously the the relationship between our roles, but you know, how we learn and grow in pretty much every area of life. Yeah. And you you fall in love with the art of process. And so the identity, mm, your your, yes. your your identity's not on the line every time some negative feedback comes your way or quote unquote, you fail or you lose or whatever, like we're failing forward. It's all, it, it, it's just a part of it. And I think that's, yeah. I mean, even just sitting here processing this in real time, there's something about those people that I would say have become heroes in my life. Like they absorb challenge, they absorb conflict and they just keep on keeping on and they're not offended and they're not quickly, easily angered. Um, they just know that when you're about growing in the process of growth, you're going to have to navigate some of this stuff and it's just kind of part of it. Yeah, totally. And I, and that, that mindset where you see the challenge and the failure as an opportunity is, is I think a characteristic of enormously impactful people obviously not across the board, but no. in many cases. And I, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, one of the recent best-selling books by Adam Grant is Think Again. Like, it is so important to be able to to take that feedback like a scientist and, and you know, wonder like, hmm, I wonder what this means or how we can learn from it. And sometimes it means, you know, like that wasn't a good choice for me. And sometimes it means that person isn't a good match for me. But, you know, if we can see that as, as learning as opposed to a sign of our inadequacies it's so much we can do so much more with it yeah for sure there was a segment in the book where you talked about um finessing your stress finesse your stress and uh th this word appraise has come up a ton for me i'm teaching uh steve magnus do hard things right now within our real estate company i'm teaching through that book oh that's um, so cool. And I, I love Steve and Brad. And yeah, and I, I, but I, as a real estate guy, we use this word appraisal all the time, and yeah, it's been so helpful through the lens of psychology to be like, oh my gosh, I'm appraising every moment, right? Danger, good, bad, correct, not right, one of us, one of them. Like that's that's. But the better we get at at accurately appraising things. Um, the less we're going to feel that tiger in the bush. So I, I, I think um, you talk about appraising and you talk about coping, and I always feel like coping has a negative connotation to it. 
I feel like though you may be helping me with that label and maybe maybe there is <laughs> another way to see that. So when we talk about finessing stress, um, talk to me about both the appraisal side of it and then coping through. Okay. I, I just want to sort of pause because, you know, for me, coping doesn't have a negative connotation, but this is such a, a way that labels uh, matter and are so unique to each of us. Right. Like a label of coping might not work well for you. It might sort of push you away from values because it might cause restriction. Whereas for me, coping seems great. <laughs> and we hear um, so coping mechanism, just, right? You know, whether that's alcohol yeah. or, or whatever, like you hear that and I need a new label. So sorry I, I interrupted you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I get that. Um, yeah. So appraising, you know, has to do with how we interpret a situation or I guess how we what value we assign to a home that is for sale. Right. Um, but in psychology terms, it's more how we interpret a situation. And exactly as you're saying, like when we're stressed out, there's sort of two ways that we can appraise a stressor. Um, it could be that there is a threat that like we are in danger. Or it could be that there is a challenge in front of us that if we figure out how to rise and meet it, that we can learn and grow and, and meet that challenge. So what we know, and this is kind of harkening back to what we talked about earlier, which is, you know, when we are experiencing something difficult, we have natural physiological reactions. So for example, we can appraise our natural physiological, in the book, I give this example of like, if you're going on stage uh, to sing a song, and you've been training for a while and your heart rate is up and, oh my gosh, you're really nervous and you can hear the rustling of the audience outside. And you're sort of noticing your cues. You're going to appraise them. What, what do I make of the fact that my heart is racing and my mind is racing and that I'm extremely nervous and uncertain about how this is going to go? I could say, oh my God, like I am so stressed out there. You know, this must mean that I'm about to bomb and like end my career before it started. Or we could appraise it as this is my body keyed up, right? Focused in adrenaline is rushing to help me do my best. I'm alive. This is going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm alive. And, and like, this is my body, like preparing to do something that is like exciting. Right. So what we know is that the different ways that we oppress, uh, appraise those internal cues actually has an impact on our performance mm -hmm. and our recovery. Right. So exactly what we were talking about before in terms of the mindset, the mindset that we have about our stress, our, our physiological experience of stress and also of stressful situations has a lot to do with how we how we meet those demands, how we meet those stressors. And so if you are in danger, it actually is important to, uh, to assess like, OK, I'm in threat, like bus is coming at me quickly. Like th this isn't a challenge that I can rise and meet. That bus will take me down if I don't get the hell out of the way. Yeah. So like it, it's not I'm not suggesting like everything is just a challenge. That's not the case. There are a number of situations that I can think of off the top of my head. Like people should really, you know, assess threat, like get out of the way, make sure that you're safe. That is important. But to really recognize that, like there's sort of a, a path and, and a choice point where you can choose like, you know, path of threat or path of stressor. And or let me say that differently, like, is this, you know, you can ask that question of like, is this a threat or is this a challenge? And being able to make that appraisal carefully and thoughtfully and quickly, right? Sometimes it needs to happen very quickly, but just being aware that there's a choice there can help you get on the pathway towards the more helpful kind of coping. Yeah. 
So now we get to coping, which is like, what do you do when there's a stressor, right? So, so say you've decided like, it's not a threat. So nothing too immediate needs to be done. At least, you know, I'm not like going to die if I don't take immediate action. Now I just need to like figure out like, how do I manage this, this challenge that's, that's before me. And there, I think, you know, the way that we think about stress can be really helpful because there's a terrific book called The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGonigal that I highly recommend. You know, we often think that stress is exclusively a bad thing. You know, we stress kills people. If you're stressed out, you're more likely to get a cold. But actually, stress has lots of positive benefits. The reason that we have that stress response, that heightened physiology, you know, the racing heart and the racing thoughts is actually because that's our body preparing to take on a challenge. And it's not just like run faster. There's actually some cognitive benefits. When we're stressed out, we're more focused on the task at hand. We, uh, our memory is better. We're a lot, you know, more quick to, in our in our thought process. The problem is if we stay there for too long. So allowing for that stress response and then allowing ourselves to recover is important. But in the process of coping, the other the other thing that I love about the stress response is that when we're stressed out, we get more social. We're more likely to reach out for help. So like if I have a work task that I don't know how to do and I'm freaking out because it's due tomorrow, I'm going to be prompted by my stress response to reach out for support. Or if I've had a, a stressful day, I'm going to reach out to my kids for a hug. And when we get that social support, our system is calmed down, right? We release oxytocin when we make contact with social support, but also we've we've now recruited resources to help us meet a demand that was sort of outside of our capacity to meet on our own. And so in all of these ways, the stress response guides us towards coping in more effective ways. Does that, is that, does that kind of get to your question? Yes. Thank you for that. I mean, it's necessary for me to kind of wrestle down that word coping and, uh, replace it with the idea of something that's beneficial, right? Not something that's detrimental, um, to me. Um, Man, well, I am, you know, I, I think, I, I hope our audience, you know, today can just kind of hear, and even one of the like subtitles, subtitles of the book is like, when everything feels like too much, there is like the human dilemma in a sentence today. And, I, and, and I'm hopeful that uh, our listeners can hear this and whether it is learning how to accept things, responding to discomfort, choosing to call our lives enriched instead of busy, uh, all of these beautiful things of integration, I think, are super, super helpful. And, and really, no matter where you are in your life, I think that this is going to be uh, a book that um, will resonate with you. I, I always ask people uh, before they leave here uh, a couple quick questions. First one, you got a new book in the world. You're constantly uh, a, a re relationship researcher. What's currently keeping you curious? Um, well, I kind of mentioned this before, but I think the thing that I'm really finding my mind thinking about so much, even when I don't mean to, is how people absorb information that is different when they, than what they already believed. Yeah. So I personally, I love books, podcasts that transform my thinking, but I, I also wonder if maybe the ideas that are so contrary to my beliefs, I like just immediately sift out. Mm. Because I can feel that as I'm trying to sort of change the conversation around working parenthood, around role conflict, that people can have a strong reaction or, or just kind of miss the point of what I'm trying to communicate. And it's it's just like this human bias that I think is fascinating and and that I'm, I'm actually wanting to write my next book about that. So I, I'm really intrigued by the way that we absorb new information. 
Yeah, why don't you just submit that op-ed to New York, New York Times again? Maybe it'll maybe it'll hit for you. Um, no, I get that. I get that. That's a, that's a huge idea. That's a huge idea of um, how we receive information and how we either chew it up, digest it, or immediately spit it out if it doesn't align with us. Um, that's a big, totally. big, big idea. What advice would you give to your uh, to your younger self? Um, yeah, I guess uh, along with the mindset stuff that I've been talking about, it's like where you start is not where you end as long as you decide that you want to keep growing. I was, so I have to say, and this is, you know, so many people who are listening to this might think like, you know, I really struggle with this idea of mindset. Like I was a very fixed mindset person. Like my um, younger years were characterized by an older and younger sibling who were so good at school. And I was like, I am just not smart. I'm not going to be as good as them. I'm not going to be as successful. And it's really like these ideas and this research that changed my mindset Mm -hmm. that helped me to do all the things that I have done. And it's so cool to look back and think, oh, I, I like really didn't think that I was capable of anything interesting or meaningful or impactful because I just didn't think I was born with those capacities. So I wish that I could tell myself and tell all the listeners out there, like where you start is not where you end if you decide that you want to keep working on it. Well said. Um, Well, guys, make sure you go out and follow Yael Shunbrun and what she's doing in the world. Um, Hey, by the way, you've got another podcast. I think it's called Psychologist Off the Clock. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so where can podcast... we go? To, yeah. Where can we go to follow you and what you're doing in the world? Well, definitely check out the podcast. I think if you like Ashton's podcast, you might also like ours. We I, we share a lot of guests. We've had Lighty on, for example. There we go. Um, it's Psychologist Off the Clock. And we try to share ideas from evidence-based psychology and really accessible, fun ways. Um, and then, so it's offtheclockpsych.com or you can look up Psychologist Off The Clock wherever you get podcasts. And then you can find my writing website, workparentthrive.com. And then you can follow me on all the socials <laughs> just by looking up Yael Schoenbren. Right on, right on. Well, thank you so much for your time and your generosity today. Uh, and for real, an email's coming your way. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy 2.0. We're going to talk about it sometime next year. Oh, I'm so there. I would be <laughs> delighted. Thank you so much. Thank right. you so much for having me. What what a fun what a fun conversation. You bet. You bet. We'll chat soon and uh, love to have you on anytime.